Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. And we're continuing with our mini-series celebrating 30 years of Physics World by looking at the stories that were hitting the headlines in Physics World 30 years ago and are still in the headlines today. This month is the turn of high-temperature superconductors. 30 years ago, Alex Muller and J. George Bednors won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of the world's first high-temperature superconductor. That discovery set alight the condensed matter community, with many people seeing this as the beginning of some amazing applications, lossless transmission lines, high-performance magnets, and of course, levitating trains. It was heralded as the beginning of the superconductivity revolution. 30 years later, and the excitement, although dipped, is beginning to start again. I caught up with Professor Elizabeth Blackburn of the Lund University in Sweden, who has come to the superconductivity community since those exciting days 30 years ago. I do work on a variety of uh, what's often called strongly correlated electron systems in the community. But what that basically means is typically superconductors and um, odd magnetic materials. And I use a variety of different techniques to look at them, including scattering probes like neutron or X-ray scattering probes to look at the structure of the materials, uh, the associated dynamics, and, and then various other techniques as it seems appropriate. Now, sometimes when I'm making this podcast, I find a concept which is not immediately obvious, or at least not immediately easy to grasp for those of us who are not in that specific field. High temperature superconductors is one such area, but Elizabeth had a useful metaphor which came up when I asked her why she had decided to follow this line of research. When I was an undergraduate, I studied quantum mechanics at university, and uh, you go through a lot of equations and trying to understand what's happening there. And eventually, one wants to look at examples of this in the real world. And uh, some of the best examples that you can get come from looking at magnetic materials or materials like superconductors, because the superconducting state is basically a case where all of the electrons in the material are inside one large quantum state. And it's it's a really nice link between the theoretical aspect and then the practical aspect of seeing seeing what, what you see there. So in my research, I like to try to find more of these uh, interesting quirks, the equations of quantum mechanics and electromagnetism. I can have a bash at trying to explain superconductivity simply to you, if you like. That would be amazing, yeah. It's <laughs> Perhaps it's a bit complicated to explain without making a lot of uh, dangerous assumptions, let's say. Yeah, yeah. But uh, inside your metal, um, obviously electrons are involved in the conduction of electricity in the in the metal, and um, as you cool the cool the system down, then uh, you reduce the amount of uh, thermal energy or general motion of the electrons inside the system, uh, just because they're getting colder, and at some point it becomes favourable to the, for them to form a, a new state. And um, to form this new state, you have to change the, the interactions between the electrons. And so for something to become superconducting, basically the electrons have to pair up. So one way to picture this is uh, if you have, a, if you have uh, two people on a mattress, um, if the mattress is very firm, then uh, 
they lay there and nothing happens. And uh, if the mattress is a bit older, a bit softer, then the two people may roll towards the middle because it sags in the middle. Mm. And so you can kind of picture your electrons as the people in this case, and the mattress as the crystal that or the, the material that the electrons are in. And that uh, kind of um, sagging effect on the mattress is equivalent to the way that these electrons pair up together. And then what is more quantum mechanical about it is that then uh, all of the electrons do this throughout the whole material and they all do it in, the, in exactly the same way, giving this large quantum state. And then this uh, quantum state, basically if you want to destroy it, you have to, you have to break up all of the pairs, um, separate all of the people on the mattresses, and that's really, really difficult to do because they're all basically tied together. So in an ordinary metal you have uh, defects inside the material or something like that and then the electrons will scatter off that scatter off those defects and then you basically uh, you it means it's, it's a source of inefficiency and it means that for example you can't transmit power uh, with a hundred percent transmission efficiency along along a wire and it causes other problems and sometimes it's very useful to be fair um, I think most electronics requires on how requires having some resistance in the in the circuits at some point to make sure that you get all of your numbers right. But uh, in the case of power transmission, for example, if you did have superconducting cables where you had no resistance along them, that it would save a lot of energy and uh, be kind of generally helpful. But there are a lot of problems associated with achieving that objective in real life. I think back in 2014, there's a German city. Essen, where they have set up a superconducting power line that runs over several kilometers, um, connecting up uh, connecting up some part of the some part of their grid there as a test. And the main problem, the main reason why it hasn't taken off further, is just that to be superconducting, you have to cool things down, and that's pretty expensive. And that's why you would want high temperature superconductivity. Uh, yes. So. Obviously, high temperature uh, doesn't necessarily mean what you might think it means. In the context of superconductors, it means that uh, they're superconducting when you are above liquid nitrogen temperatures, but still pretty cold. Yeah. Because liquid nitrogen is relatively easy to generate. So that's, uh, oh, I'd have to convert that into minus degrees Celsius. But it's, it's colder than Antarctica, uh, but it's relatively easy to achieve. The cost of making a pint of liquid nitrogen is is allegedly the same as the cost of a pint of milk, more or less. And so although there are some technological issues with cooling everything down and making making the cables out of these high-temperature superconductors, um, in principle, it's achievable. The technological issues with making the cables are tough because they are more like ceramics than metals, so you can't, can't make a bendable wire quite as easily. But people have been working on that for a long time, and they've made a lot of progress. And there are now superconducting cables that, as, as I said, have been implemented in some places. And I think uh, still working on the details to see how easy it is to roll that out further. For temperatures below liquid nitrogen, it's technically feasible on a small scale, but on a larger scale, uh, the logistics are quite are quite difficult, basically just because it's a lot harder to keep everything everything at the requisite temperature. Whereas with the liquid nitrogen, you can kind of... Um, be producing it at a, be producing it on the same kind of time scale as it's boiling off. It's just a question of uh, how much you care about the losses. So if your power station is a few miles away from where you're using the power, then you obviously one would use copper. But if uh, sometimes people talk about these large projects for using uh, for generating uh, generating renewable resources in places that are a long way away from 
from where the people live. And in those cases, one could argue that uh, that every percent of efficiency that you gain is uh, is very important. When Ben Rosenmuller won the Nobel Prize for the first high-temperature superconductor, it had caused a certain amount of surprise. I know that I personally would never have thought of using the material that they did for conducting electricity. And so I've got the a, a coffee mug here, right, which is ceramic, and um, I've got a metal tape with me. I, I, yep. I, there's no way that I would have thought, I'm <laughs> going to use the mug for my electricity. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I can't speak for, for the people who won the Nobel Prize for discovering it, but I think that they were investigating a series of different materials and... When you've made a new material, you want to find out how it behaves. So one of the things you do is you look at uh, how it conducts electricity, you look at its magnetic properties, you look at how long it takes to change the temperature of the material. And um, one of the ways you do these things is by changing the temperature at the same time. So then you look at these materials and you find out that they do some interesting things. Basically, there was a discovery that uh, these materials, these um, high-temperature superconducting materials, uh, were discovered. I wouldn't say by accident, but uh, it wasn't necessarily expected at the time that these would do these things. It was basically outside of the scope of how people understood how the superconducting materials that existed before. It was, it was outside of the scope of how people understood them to work. And so there was some skepticism. Uh, not everybody believed the results at first. They thought maybe some, some mistakes had been made, but enough people were able to reproduce the results. And at some point, it seemed like every, well, what I've heard is that every every lab in the world was cooking up some of these materials, and uh, they're relatively easy to make. So I think in some schools, children were making them in their chemistry classes, and then you could show very easily, if you had some liquid nitrogen, that they were superconducting by doing the experiment where you float a magnet on top, which you may have seen. So there was a lot of excitement that was this a completely new phenomenon? It looked like superconductivity. Was it the same as the superconductivity that had previously been seen? Was it something completely different? Would it be because it was working at higher temperatures, how high in temperature could it go? Would that make superconductors much more useful in everyday life? And so there were a lot of these kind of questions floating around and a lot of effort expended in trying to trying to find the answers. And so at Birmingham University, they were the first people to show, uh, they built something called a Josephson junction out of these materials, and they were able to show that uh, the electrons were pairing up, and they formed a pair of electrons in the same way as in the, uh, kind of, let's call it, normal superconductivity. And although that's that's perfectly accepted now, at the time it was a, it was a very contentious issue. And so then people have been working on this for, for, for a lot longer and uh, there are still a lot of open questions. Professor Stephen Hayden of the University of Bristol is a fundamental physicist who's been working with superconductivity since even before that Nobel Prize winning discovery 30 years ago. It was a very exciting time. It was exciting for me because I was at um, an international centre in, in Grenoble at the Institute of Larry Longevin. And there were many people passing through, and we would hear new stories and new new phenomena that were being discovered. Um, so it was quite exciting. And some of the other scientists who, who were doing easier types of measurement, I would say, if you're doing structural measurements, for example, um, 
rather than measuring excitations where you need quite big crystals, they would be very competitive. And I remember one of my colleagues running around, you know, uh, to, to get to, he, I think he felt that the competitors were onto him, and um, so he had to get things done fast. So it was quite an exciting time. It was also quite a frustrating time because getting the good samples of the new samples, of new materials, was, was quite hard. So it was quite competitive and, 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 and lots of people moved into it. Um, but yeah, it's an exciting time. I, mean, I think it continues to be an exciting time even now. There's still progress uh, being made, less people working in the field, but I think those, those that are still find it very exciting. You know, and I think there's still a lot to do in, in it. A theoretical explanation for high-temperature superconductivity has eluded legions of physicists who have been working on the problem for this last 30 years. And it does remain an important and unsolved problem in physics. And is there anything better than that? Well, quite possibly, because its solution could have important theoretical and practical implications that stretch well beyond the physics of superconductivity. And there have been some breakthroughs over the years. In, in 2012, two groups, I was a part of one of the, um, the collaborations, discovered that high-temperature superconductors have charge order, a new type of order. It had been actually suggested way back in the 1990s that high temperature signatures might be charge correlations that are, that are in there. But they were never really seen. Um, but then they were discovered, and, and, and that sort of injected a new angle into, into it. So um, that's one of the areas that we're still currently working on. In materials where the, the electrons are important, in materials that have interesting electronic properties like superconductors or semiconductors, some of the electrons the ones that are on the outside of the atoms, the valence electrons, they're able to move through through the whole crystal structure and, and, and conduct electricity or, or make the thing superconducting. And then those electrons, of course, the fundamental properties of electrons are that they have a charge. The spins are like little magnets and they can order um, and, and point in the same direction, or at least locally they might all be pointing in, in the same direction for a short time, so you can get a wave of spin. And you can also get waves of, of charge. So locally, you might have um, a lack of electrons, a deficit, or you might have a surplus, and then you can have a wave of charge in, 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 a, in a solid. So those things can fluctuate like waves on the sea, and you can get excitations, charge fluctuations, charge excitations, or spin excitations. And those are the things I started investigating. But then what's also been found uh, more recently is that the charge waves, if you like, can freeze to give you an ordered wave, and like a static wave. And, and that's, that's what we found. And this seems to be related to the superconductivity. So somehow you've got a system that um, either the electrons want to, to move in, in a way that they become superconducting, or they also have a tendency to, to, to have these charge, frozen charge waves at the same at the same time. And sometimes one thing wins out and sometimes the other. So we say it's um, a competing ground state. When the system becomes superconducting, it, it, it chooses the state with the lowest energy. And there's two states, one that's superconducting and one that has these frozen charge waves. So the big question for us is to understand how these things are mixed together, how they're intertwined, as we call it. 
whether the charge waves are actually helping the superconductivity or they're hindering it. Or, or maybe another possibility is they're both manifestations of some higher combined entity. Um, so that's, that's, that's what the sorts of things the theorists are working on now. My motivation for it is that I want to provide the theorists with the information to actually understand why these things are superconducting. And it looks like, from where I stand, that it's still a magnetically mediated phenomenon. But we really have to check out the charge degrees of freedom um, as, as, as well to see how relevant uh, those are. So the excitement is to understand why something's superconducting and I'll be able to, to make an experiment that I can show to people this provides strong evidence. So such an experiment might be to change a parameter and, and show that the, the excitations that we measure are there for some superconductors, some compositions where you get superconductivity and perhaps they disappear and as they disappear the superconductivity goes away. That would be the excitement to have a definitive experiment that shows this superconductivity is caused by this mechanism and then that information can be used to make, in quotation marks, better superconductors. And what do those experiments actually look like? Well, my experiments are usually done on um, what we call large facilities. So it'll be like um, a spallation source, which is a, a source that produces neutrons. We use the ISIS facility at the Rutherford Lab and the, the Diamond Synchrotron in Harwell and the Institute Larry Langevin in, in Grenoble and the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility that's also in Grenoble. And sometimes we go to other places like the advanced photon source in near Chicago, the DESI synchrotron in Hamburg. So there's many facilities and they have different types of spectrometer. So we go and try and find the one that's best for us. The experiment will consist of the big source. In the case of a synchrotron, is an accelerator. And also in the case of a spallation neutron to accelerate particles to produce the, uh, the neutrons. And then they'll come along, they'll be carried to to, to the sample, which will be quite small, you know, a few centimeters cubed of sample inside a cryostat, the, the neutrons or the X-rays will be brought to the sample and they'll scatter. And then we'll have a lot of detectors. So in the case of neutrons, because there's relatively few neutrons produced to do the experiments, we have lots of detectors at lots of different angles to collect the neutrons. There'll be several meters squared of surface of detectors and some of these spectrometers I use that collect the neutrons. And then there'll be electronics to record the time of arrival of the neutrons. We use that to, to determine the energy of the neutrons and the direction they came. So it's like making a big image of the scattered particles with all these detectors. The, the whole experimental setup is you know several meters across and it's so it's quite a big thing, you know. And the instruments I use will be used by many people for, for many other types of experiments as well. I wanted to get an understanding of why it has taken 30 years to get superconductors back to a point of excitement. Well, the high-temperature superconductors, the thing they have in common is that they all contain copper and oxygen and then some other materials. And the copper and oxygen are the parts that seem to be the, the common thread where the superconductivity is generated for want of a better word and the other materials that are involved they play some role in in pushing apart the the copper oxygen units and when you make these materials they're ceramic materials so they are crumbly they're brittle they're not something that you can easily pull into a wire shape or roll out so that makes them that made them quite easy to make um difficult to 
put into a format where you could turn it into a wire. So it took a lot of materials research. And the solution that, that has eventually been developed is that you basically make a thin film of these materials and then you have to surround it by the other material. You have to grow whole stacks of thin films together. That's so that you can bend the tape. I think that's the right way to put it. So you have a kind of tape of this material and it's a thin film of the superconducting part stacked between other layers where you, some of the other layers are just to make sure that the superconducting part doesn't just peel off because then it would it would break. And then there are other parts where you have to have some things that are more metallic or better conductors um, outside of the superconducting regime so that if the cable stops being superconducting during operation, it doesn't melt. And uh, basically this means you have to have stacks of uh, some tens of different types of thin layers all on top of each other. And then you have to turn that into some kind of cable that eventually you can just easily connect up to your terminal or your fuse box or something like that mm. and it's it was it's very difficult to do cool. but it is something that we're seeing happening now yes as i said there have been some test cases that have been put in place and uh, if you go to the right company you can buy some of this tape off the shelf and try to try to use it to make things there are test projects ongoing to use these cables to make magnets. I know a bit more about that because that's more directly relevant to my own to my own research interests. But there are various companies in the UK and elsewhere who are trialing using these uh, high temperature superconducting tapes to make superconducting magnets, where the advantage then is that you only need to cool them down with liquid nitrogen rather than with liquid helium, which is what's currently done today in most large mm, superconducting magnets. And if you want to know, what superconducting magnets are used for. They're typically used in MRI machines in hospitals or in uh, some turbines um, for generating electricity. I think the most recent uh, case where a superconducting magnet might have come to public attention was that there was a problem at CERN at one point due to um, a connection going wrong and a superconducting magnet losing all of its helium, which is called quenching and uh, causing some problems down the line. So that's an occupational hazard when you're using superconducting magnets. You use superconductivity to make the magnets, which you then use in the <laughs> synchrotrons in order to research yeah. superconductivity. <laughs> the other thing yeah. that people think about is levitating trains. Why, yes. why, why don't I levitate my way to Manchester tomorrow? <laughs> so there are... One can levitate trains with the superconducting tracks, although it can also be done just using magnets. One thing you may not know, because I didn't know this, the like the first uh, track to illustrate that you could use this uh, use magnetic levitation methods with trains was done at Birmingham Airport for their monorail that goes to the between the um, train station and the airport. Hey, cool. And uh, now they took it all away at some point. I don't know when, but uh, that was one of the first trial runs. So why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it happen all the time? What's the problem? So the magnetic levitation part of trains, it is used in some places, famously in Japan, but there are some, I mean, I'm not quite sure why it's not rolled out further. I, I assume that there are some technical issues that mean that you need, I don't know, particularly straight parts of track or that you need to be able to make sure that you're not having any interference from other other trains, or maybe it just doesn't make enough difference on the, um, the loss of friction just doesn't make enough difference over very large over length scales that trains in the UK typically travel. Right. So yeah. I guess it can be done. I, I 
it seems that there's not much uptake, so I guess it mustn't really add too much to the experience. Professor Stephen Hayden spoke of another city using superconducting cabling to carry current into the centre of the city, Copenhagen. In big cities, the problem is now that the, the, the city is kind of built um, and, and you have limited places to put your power cables uh, in underground. And the cities continue to expand. So one of the problems is getting the power to all the, all the people that are now filling the centre of these cities. So if you want to replace an existing copper cable with something else to get more power in, then superconducting cable is, is, is what uh, you could do. The Copenhagen um, superconducting uh, interconnector is, will allow you to get more power into uh, the centre of the city with less loss of power due to uh, due to heat. So it's, uh, it, it allows you to, to bring more power in, into the city without having to use um, high-voltage high uh, pylons and so on, which you can't use inside the city. Ironically, it, it, it increases the, this sort of power consumption of your city because you can get more power in a smaller space using superconducting wire compared to with copper wire. So, but it's ironic in that that then is means we want to use even more power. So probably the way, the way that we should be going is that these people moving into the cities use less power per person, and then we don't actually have to put more, more cables, more capacity into the middle of this um, city. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not selling it in a good way. Um, what you should do if you want to be if you want to be green here um, a good if you're building a very big um, wind turbine you've got a generator on the top there so there are um, at least demonstrator wind turbines where they put a superconducting generator in the top and that can be a lot smaller than a conventional one because the magnets in the you know in the generator if they're superconducting can be a lot smaller so you so you could have a bigger uh, capacity windmill in principle if you put use a superconducting generator instead of a conventional one. When you want to turn on and off the power grid that you can have a superconductor carrying a lot of current and then you can stop it very quickly and respond to switch in and in and out um, current fault limiters they call them I think. If there's a perturbation, if there's a short to ground or solar flare or or some power station goes off, you have to read jig how the power is flowing and that can needs to be done very quickly if you were to look at the field that you're in in 30 years time where do you think it will be where do you hope it will be um well i would have hoped we would have found more superconductors made from materials that are readily available and um, are not going to have a big environmental impact so there's a lot of combinations of um, elements that that one can make to make new materials. So I would hope we would discover some new ones, and I would hope that that would have been guided by the work that we've done. Yeah. So already people have found that one can get even higher temperatures, not in cuprates, which is the area I've worked in, but in materials with a lot of hydrogen in under pressure. So they, those are the highest temperatures now. But those aren't really practical because you can't really put those into the streets of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is to find other materials, perhaps even related to, the, to those, which, um, which we can use. I put that same question to Professor Elizabeth Blackburn. For the high temperature superconductors I've been talking about, um, they've kind of maxed out 
at about uh, a little below 200 Kelvin, um, so about minus 80, minus 90 degrees Celsius. Uh, there have been some experiments in the last couple of years looking at, uh, at hydrogen sulfide, H2S, uh, where if it's under a very, very high pressure, then it uh, superconducts uh, above room temperature, but um, applying high pressures is, uh, is less practical than cooling things down. And in that case, the mechanism that, that is operating in the hydrogen sulfide uh, superconductor is basically the same, uh, same mechanism as in the first superconductors that were, that were discovered. In the case of the high temperature superconductors containing the copper and the oxygen, there are still a lot of questions about exactly how the superconductivity is generated. And uh, but the, the general hope is that when one understands this better, one can then build materials um, on, on demand that will have the capabilities required. But I'm not sure that one would ever get all that close to something that's working at room temperature um, without applying large pressures or, or something like that, um, just because of the relative energy scales that are the, that are that are involved and um, the the limits on material properties. But people have said that kind of thing before, and like they said it before in 1986, and then I guess they were proved wrong when something was found that changed opinions. So, looking towards the future, I would say that. People would like to understand how how these superconductors operate more clearly, and there are other classes of superconductor that have been found that uh, must work in a different way, not necessarily at such high temperatures, but using some different mechanisms. So understanding how these different mechanisms that work would be very interesting from the theoretical point of view. And from my own point of view, there will be other strange electronic effects out there, and I hope to find some myself. There may not ever be a need for levitating trains, but those wonderful demonstrations of superconductivity, levitating magnets around a track that we see at science festivals and YouTube videos, are not the be-all and end-all of superconductivity research. And while particle physics and astronomy often grab the headlines, it's been a real pleasure for me to explore high-temperature superconductivity. Next month, we're taking a trip to CERN to explore the birth of the web 30 years ago in the final of this mini-series celebrating 30 years of physics world. And it's certainly an area where it feels like new physics discoveries are waiting to be made. And we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening. Physics World